have a seat, we're in 2 Samuel. And singing that song, I'm reminded, I might as well tell you I've made a decision. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I know, I know, right? Isn't that just like, he made a decision? It's fantastic. She feels good about it. Yeah, yeah, she was my advisor on it. No, I, I, I think I mentioned to you all before that um, I was back and forth on whether we would after finishing 2 Samuel, because I'm already, I'm already done. I don't know about you guys, but I'm already out. No. Uh, but after 2 Samuel, whether to go on into uh, the book of Kings or do the book of Revelation. And I had told myself after the last time we did it, we finished it at the beginning of 2019. So it's, we're coming up on four, well, four years now, we're coming up on five. So I thought I want to do it at this point in the age of the church. I'd like to do it about every five years or so at minimum. Um, so I wanted to come back to it, but I wasn't sure. Do we, do we finish Samuel going to Book of Kings or Revelation? Well, I've made my decision, and I'll let you know as soon as we're done with Samuel. <laughs> no, we're going to do the Book of King. One King. We'll, we'll go into Revelation. And uh, by my calculations, we'll be there in November. So that's all you got to wait, just till November. But we got to finish Samuel because... As we've talked about, we opened up on Sunday the second Samuel, which is really part two of the book of Samuel. We're just in the continuing saga. But David now is going to ascend to the throne. And it is the son of David that we long for and who is coming to rule and reign from the same location, from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. And uh, to get this foundation and understand, even tonight, we, we're going to begin to see the beginnings of this promise, this covenant promise of God of the kingdom, not just the kingdom for Israel, but the kingdom eternal. So this is really crucial stuff to our faith. I, you know, I don't know if, if any church you grew up in or, or where you've been before, if, if people said, yeah, 2 Samuel, foundational to Christian faith. It is. It's vital to our spirits and to our understanding. And, and what we're going to talk about tonight is no less, although you might, you might read through some of this and go, Okay, great. I mean, thanks for the history, but why do we need to know this? We'll get there. But before we do, I, I, several years ago, we had the opportunity to meet, in my mind, a dignitary. It's funny, when I really started to get into Bible study and, and, and the Word of God and then study Israel, all of my heroes changed. All the people that I would consider celebrities changed. Well, this was a person that, to me, was a celebrity. Of course, you all know of Elat uh, Mazar. Uh, Benjamin Mazar was a famed uh, professor and archaeologist, very famous in Israel. And he had a granddaughter named Elat. And Elat finished with her uh, doctorate in archaeology, archaeological studies, in 1997 and went to work on her grandfather's site, a little area just to the south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the city of David. And in all the excavations, some of you have walked through, you've seen the city of David, but in all of these excavations, what's remarkable is that it wasn't even until 1993 that we had a single shred of archaeological evidence that a king of Israel named David ever even existed. 
There was nothing. And of course, the liberal scholars and some archaeologists and people of those of that ilk would, would say, oh, there's not really a, it's, it's a fictional character made up by Jewish rabbis to try and drum up some kind of nationalism for Israel. That's all he really was. He didn't exist. And we had nothing. 1993, you Bible students know the Tel Dan Stella or Stila was discovered. It was a memorial stone on which was written the house of David. And so first time ever, we got proof there was a house of David, even as the scriptures describe the house of David following or coming after the house of Saul. Well, so that was 93. Well, 97 was when Elat Mazar, this, this woman, uh, finished her doctorate and went to work there in the city of David. Now, she was of, uh, of a great archaeological background because of her grandfather. She had grown up going to dig. She knew an awful lot about it, but she was considered by many to be a novice. You know, yeah, you got your degree, but you haven't really been in the field like the rest of us. And when she came out and said, I know where the palace of David is, Oh, they made fun of her. Come on. You don't know where, no, you can't, that's cute. You're really cute. And they began to dig and she dug some more. And while excavating there in the city of David, she found David's palace. And it's a huge stone edifice that is there in the city of David and it could be nothing else. But some for a while are saying, maybe that was the temple. No, 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 no. Temple's on the Temple Mount, and, and if you want to have that discussion, you YouTubers, talk to me, because anything you've seen out there is incorrect. The Temple was up there. The city of David was to the south. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off course here. Elat Mazar, she actually passed away in 2021. We were supposed to meet her on our 2020 tour that COVID canceled. So I was a little bummed out, so, you know, didn't get to meet her. One of my heroes, a celebrity to me, but she discovered the palace of David in the city of David. You know how she found it? Doing what archaeologists in Israel should do by studying the scriptures. She was just studying the Hebrew scriptures and she recognized that the palace of David should be at the summit of the city of David. So she said, that's where it's gonna be. And again, she was laughed off until they discovered it. And, and the more they dig, even to this day, the more they find that confirms this, the palace of David in the city of David. But prior to 1993 and the Tel Dan Stila and 1997 and following and the discovery of the, of the archaeological finds that now give this evidence and this proof of David, well, long before that, the scriptures told us all about him. In fact, we know more about David than any other man in biblical history. More about David because of all the, the, the books that talk about him, beginning with Ruth, if you remember the, the David as the, uh, in the lineage of Ruth, mentioned at the end of Ruth, Ruth chapter four, and then going through Samuel and King, Kings and Chronicles. David is mentioned, obviously, in the Psalms. Ezra, Nehemiah, he's mentioned. He's uh, talked about in the prophets so throughout the scriptures, you hear this name David over and over and over. In fact, 1,078 times you hear the name David mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures, and only one. Remember when we opened up 1 Samuel, I believe I told you, or maybe when we got about halfway through, there's no other David in the Bible. There's just one man named David, and, and that's the David that we're talking about here. He is the lead character in 62 chapters of the Hebrew scriptures, he wrote at a minimum, at a minimum, 73 of the Psalms are actually ascribed to him and many more probably were written by him as well. 
He's mentioned another 59 times in the New Testament scriptures. Jesus refers to David 10 times himself, and David figures prominently in both family lines of Jesus the Messiah in the genealogies of Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter three. Jesus, as we've talked about, is the son of David, called the son of David of the lineage of David. In fact, he's called the son of David another 11 times in the Newer Testament. And if that's not enough, David is intimately connected to Jesus in the revelation of Jesus. Three different times we read Revelation chapter three, verse seven, where Jesus holds the key of David. The key of David, which if we cross-reference to Isaiah, we discover the key of David is really the key to the treasuries of the entire kingdom. So that's the implication is he's the one who has the key to the treasuries, to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Revelation 5.5 tells us Jesus is the root of David. Don't miss that. That doesn't mean he comes after. It means he came before. And then in Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The one who comes before, the one who comes after. And in addition to all that, David still has a role to play in the coming millennial kingdom. He's gonna be a government official. He's gonna be a higher up. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23 says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, some take that and they, they slide it into the area of metaphor or allegory and they say, well, David there just means Messiah. You know, I will set over them one servant or, or one shepherd, my servant David. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Some believe that. Why then is Jesus never called David anywhere else? That would be the only place where David is named instead of Messiah or instead of son of David or instead of Messiah the prince or something else. And my opinion in reading through that is that Jesus will be king over all the world and David is going to be president of Israel. I think that's how it's gonna work. He'll, or like a vice president to Messiah the king. Greatest king in the history of Israel is going to rise again. In fact, Psalm 16, he declares it. You're not gonna, you're not gonna let me see decay. And he says, you're not gonna keep your holy one in the grave. So he's speaking both of himself and Messiah. You can look that up, Psalm 16, I believe, verse 10. He will rise as will we all. He will resurrect and he will be on site in the kingdom, so much for Elat Mazar or any other heroes, we're gonna have Jesus. And David's gonna be there too. But with the second chapter of 2 Samuel, we now are going to witness the rise of David and it all begins in Hebron. Verse one, chapter two. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Achinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there anointed David king Note this, over the house of Judah. 
Saul and Jonathan are now dead, as we, as we have already witnessed in the end of 1 Samuel, coming into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. The kingdom itself is in utter collapse. But after that chapter of lamentation, uh, of grieving the loss of the anointed king and the dearest friend of his whole life, David prays. David prays. First thing he does, he inquired of the Lord. I'll give you some things to jot down if you want the note-taking outline to follow. And the first one is a governing prayer. A governing prayer. I use that word governing because this is prayer that governs his life. David inquired of the Lord. The word inquired is sha'al, and it means to ask or to consult. So David sought a consultation with the Lord. And it's, it's brief. I mean, you'd blow right by it if you weren't stopping and thinking about what's going on, about what's happening at this crucial moment in the life of David. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. And he said, where shall I go up? And he said to him, to Hebron. And you read that and go, okay, that's a very simple interchange moving right along. Don't do that. Because while it's just a two-question consult, this is a pivotal moment. You see, his hometown, at least for the last year and a half in Ziklag, is toast. Burned to the ground, it is no more. The kingdom of Israel outside of Philistine land there on the Gazan coast is in disarray, unraveling. And David finally says, all right, Lord, shall I go back? He needs direction. Where to, what now, have you ever been there? And how many times in your life have you been like, okay, I don't know where even to go from here. In this position, I see no alternatives. I see no, few, I, I don't, what, what am I supposed to do? And what we typically do in the flesh is we start to work it out. We start to think it through. We get out the paper and we do the pros and cons list. We process the ideas. We may, may get consultation from some friends or other people, maybe call a family member. Hey, look, I'm really stuck here. Can you uh, talk this through with me? David inquired of the Lord. And while it's such a simple truth, it is the best answer. It's always the first and best answer when you're not sure which direction to go to inquire of the Lord. So much of prayer tends to be those petitions of, of the wants and the needs and the, and the desires. Well, we've also talked about recently worshipful prayer where the only thing you're doing in prayer is giving thanks or worshiping the Lord. But there's also a prayer of consultation. You're not asking for anything in particular. You're asking the Lord's will. The Lord's will. Should I go, Lord? And if so, where, Lord? What do you want me to do. Psalm 25, verse four, David writes, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. So rather than striking out, David stops. I'm gonna inquire of the Lord here. Psalm 91 Verse 15, which speaks actually prophetically of Jesus, says, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Call upon the Lord. And you may be familiar with this one, Isaiah 65, verse 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. He already knows, which then begs that question. Well, then why do we even ask? Because he wants you to. 
because he'd like to have a little communication with you and with me. And sometimes those stuck places in our lives are there simply because the Lord is waiting for us to say, should I go? And if so, where? God's always way out ahead of our consultations. So the questions that David asks here are are not from perplexity as much as, as I said, pivotal. He's asking, think about the seriousness of this. Is it time to burn the Philistine bridges? Because if he goes back up to Judah, he will once and for all declare his loyalty. Right now, he's playing both sides. Remember, he's in Philistine land because he can then go into Judah. He's very well known in Judah, in the cities of Judah. He can go into Judah and he can make raids against the enemies of Israel. He can fight for the people of Israel, sneak kind of in, and then back out to Philistine country. He can lie about it to the Philistine king and play both sides. But now David's realizing, I gotta gotta not just only make a choice for my people, I need to declare that choice. But even as right a decision as it is, he stops and asks the Lord first, should I go? Is it time? Saul's dead. Is it time to go up to Judah? If he does, that's it. He is all in for Israel and the Philistines are gonna know. And then if he does go up, he says, shall I go up? And the Lord says, I love the Lord's simplicity and answer, go up. Okay, Where? Where to? And it is the Lord who directs him to Hebron. It is not David's desire, his first choice, his want. We don't know. I mean, maybe he liked Hebron, the region, the hill country there. It's also called Kiriat Arba. He may want to go there, but that's not what we get here. Where to, Lord? And the Lord tells him, Hebron, why is that important? It's huge. But before we get to why it's so huge... After a governing prayer, we come to a godly persuasion. A godly persuasion. Note this again in verse four, the men of Judah. Well, no, no, verse three, David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. These are all the guys who are with David. Remember, it started out as about 400, and then it was 600, and we don't even know how many hundred it is now. Men, so not including women and children, this is a pretty, pretty large group of people who have now attached themselves to David. Number two in your list, a godly persuasion. Now, just think about how these guys have changed. Back in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. Now, this is not the kind of church I would want to plant. Just being honest, the distressed, the indebted, and those who were uh, discontent. Yeah, that's, that's who I'm looking for to hang out with. But they all came out to David, and he began to gather them and work with them and fight with them and fight for them. It says he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men, which then we know in 1 Samuel 23, 13, it was then 600 men, and as I said, probably more by now than that. Donna pointed something out to me Sunday morning. And I love this. By the way, do that. If you see something and I'm just flying right by it, let me know because there's stuff that that we can all miss. She pointed out how interesting these same men who had previously advised David in the cave and on the hill, they had advised David to kill Saul. Did you remember? Did you notice what they did in chapter one of 2 Samuel? They tore their clothes and they mourned the death of the king. Why? Why? Because David did. 
This is a godly persuasion. They are following the leadership of David. They're doing as David is doing. They are influenced by David. This, this one-time band of miserable and solvent malcontents. Now, they're coming with David back to the homeland of Judah. This was the land that had kicked them out, or so they felt. And they're coming back in with him with all their families and everything. They're gonna follow David, but they're coming into the land, all the men with him under his leadership. That is a godly persuasion. You know what? You have a godly persuasion. You may not even be aware of it. Or you may know. You may be a parent of, of, of young kids or of teenagers. You still have a godly persuasion over them. What you do, not necessarily so much even what you say, but what you do, they're watching it. You have a godly persuasion over friends and family members, and oftentimes we don't even realize it. We have no idea how we are influencing people around us just by the everyday decisions that we make when we're not thinking of other people. I want to do this. Well, by doing that, you have a persuasion. Is it a godly persuasion or is it a fleshly persuasion? We're all persuading people, and David was with these men, and so under his leadership, with a, a noble heart, remember, he's a man after God's own heart, he's a man who fears the Lord, he loves the Lord, he inquires of the Lord, and now they're going back with him, and we come to the second of three anointings of David. The second of three anointings, the first by Samuel at Bethlehem, which recognizes David as the chosen of God, he would be chosen to rule, but it wasn't anointing, an anointing to be king, not immediately. You know, that was, he was what, 17, 18 years old at the time, he's now 30. So a lot of time has passed. He's already had one anointing, but then he comes up to Hebron, comes up to Judah, back to his own tribe, and his tribe makes him king. So he is anointed as king. Verse four, the men of Judah came and anointed David king over the house of Judah over the house of Judah. The last anointing will be as king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes. That doesn't happen until chapter five, verse three. A lot still has to happen before then. But this second anointing, again, is, is as king over Judah. That's significant because Genesis 49, 10, old Jacob prophesied the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff be from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him the obedience of the peoples. It will be Judah's rule, not Benjamin. Remember, King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a king out of place from the very beginning. A king like the nations. But he was not the king chosen by God. God chose Judah to be the royal lineage. And so here comes David. And where is he first anointed? In Judah, in Hebron. And that's where it all begins. And as I said before, that's a big deal. Why Hebron? Well, rationally, it's a safe place. I hate to even use the phrase. It's a safe place. But it is for David because in the far south of Israel, it is among his own people of his own tribe, and it's a way that he can kind of come back into Israel while there's still a lot of mess that needs cleaning up before he can step into royal rule. If he came in and went straight to Gabeon and cut down Saul's tamarisk tree and said, I am king, it, would have, it wouldn't have lasted. People would have fought against him. It would have been 
an absolute mess. This way he comes in, and God knows his timing. So David is anointing king over Judah there in Hebron, in this safe starting point. Hebron is also, as, as Eva pointed out to me today, it is one of the cities of refuge in Israel. Now, David's not going to it for a city of refuge. He hasn't killed anyone, at least in that way, where he's being pursued by a kinsman redeemer, but he's at a city of refuge. It is a great place of refuge for David. And again, he's well-known, he's supported there, but there's more. David didn't choose Hebron. God did. Where should I go up? Hebron. Go to Hebron. Why, Lord? Number three in your notes, a grand panorama. A grand panorama. By the way, we know the exact location of Hebron in Israel. And in that tell, archaeologists, they actually dug up five, count them five, 10th century jar handles on which the name Hebron is written with this inscription in the Hebrew. It's Lamed Mem Lamed Kaf. Four letters, L-M-L-K, which means to the king. Hebron to the king. King David. Uh, in the tribe of Judah, there in Hebron. So they found these things right there. But why again Hebron? Why this city? And it goes all the way back. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. This is the fulfillment, or at least signifies the coming to fulfillment of a great covenant promise of God to our friend Abram. Before he was even Abraham, Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, remember the two had a little conflict over where to live, where, what land they would have, and Lot chose the better land, <coughs> Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram was left with what was left, so he comes down to Hebron. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you will see, I will give it to you and to your descendants. How long? Forever, forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants, literally your seed, can also be numbered. Arise and walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We have now, from Abram, come full panoramic circle back to Hebron and the king, who is anointed there to begin this kingly rule of a kingdom that is forever. Oh, it's had its ups and downs. It's had its stops and starts, no question. Right now, it's in stop mode. And yet, there is something happening in the kingdom, for the kingdom, and to the kingdom. Boy, we're gonna see the kingdom. I get all excited about that. But it is the kingdom that grows right from here. It grows and expands out of Hebron. By the way, of all the places in Israel, Hebron is probably the most contested You've got, you've got absolutely raving Orthodox Jewish people, no offense, but I mean, they're, they're serious, serious settlers there in Hebron, and you've got virulent Palestinians 
and they live right across the street from each other. I mean, there's a line down Hebron. Even the cave, what they call the cave of the patriarchs, is half Muslim, half Jewish. And fights break out there all the time and rock throwing and, and gunfire. And it's, it's, a, it's a very tense fight. I've been there one time. And I, I, I would love to go back because of the location. I would not love to go back because of how it felt. It was the most stressful place I've ever been in Israel. I'm never stressed out anywhere else. There, we were just walking on eggshells. You could feel the tension in Hebron. Why? That's God's starting point of the kingdom. And it is highly significant. Well, verse four, so they've now anointed David king and continuing it says, and they told David saying, oh, wait, let me tell you one more thing because I can't wait to tell you until like later. Another, we might not even get to another teaching. I might as well tell you now. David is anointed king over the house of Judah there in Hebron. Do you know how long he's king in Hebron? Seven and a half years, which is really interesting. It's gonna be seven and a half years of civil war before he can come into the kingdom. Well, Rick, that's cool, but I happen to have done the math and I know that the tribulation is just seven years. Okay, well, you need to read the last chapter of the book of Daniel where there's some extra days added. So we're really looking at about a seven and a half year period. Seven years of tribulation and then there's about a half a year of cleanup, okay? And that's how long David was in Hebron and the civil war that we're gonna start to get into tonight is unfolding before the kingdom comes. It's just another amazing picture here in the scriptures. But he's there, seven and a half years. But they told David, they said, it was the men of Yabesh Galad who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Yabesh Galad and said to them, may you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So he's not king over the men of Yabesh Galad, which is up in the northern area of Israel. In fact, it's across the river. He's not king over them, but he says, I'm anointed king here in Judah, but Saul's dead. David, what are you doing here? Well, he's playing a little politics. But I'm not even sure I can do this because it seems so rare. It's a political move motivated by integrity. <laughs> we don't often see that these days. But the two coincide here. This is a political, it's absolutely a political move. It's a very wise political move, but it's also a move of integrity. It's both diplomatic and it is honorable on the part of David. He doesn't ask them to swear allegiance to him. He doesn't claim to be their king. He just says, I'm king here in Judah now. He does remind them Saul is dead. He is extending the olive branch, but before he even suggests, make me your king, he says to them, you are honorable people and I will treat you honorably because of how you treated the anointed king. See, David's love for the position and the anointed king is what makes him such a man of integrity. He knows what's right. He knows what's right by the Lord. And so he makes, number four in your notes, we're moving tonight, a gracious proposition. A gracious proposition proposition precisely because of their honorable affiliation with Saul and their treatment of Saul the Lord's anointed he makes a gracious proposition and note the phrase right in the middle of this missive that David sends off to these guys 
He says in verse six, may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. Now you need to circle that because that's the first time in the scriptures those two words are used together by someone other than the Lord himself. God said it first, Exodus 34, verse six, says the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And the next time the phrase is used, it's by David right here. May the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And then the man after God's own heart picks it up again after this. He runs with it. Psalm 25, verse 10, he writes, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. In Psalm 61, verse 6, David again writes, he says, you will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever, appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. You Bible students, you know what I'm talking about here? Loving kindness and truth, loving kindness is chesed, grace. God says, I am the God of grace and truth. David extends the Lord of grace and truth to Yabesh Galad. David says, all the paths of the Lord are grace and truth. Appoint grace and truth that they may preserve him. And John chapter one, verse 14, the apostle writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And then John writes in verse 17 of John chapter one, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, son of David. Loving kindness and truth, grace and truth. Anyone who is after the heart of God, which is any of us who are pursuing God, we may be tripping along the way, we may be struggling, we may at times be crawling, but if we're a people after the heart of God, it is the grace and truth of Jesus that preserves us. It's his grace that saves us. It's his truth that sanctifies us. Grace and truth. It is so important to the spiritual life. Why is it so important? Grace and truth, grace and truth. We hear it throughout the scriptures. By the way, John's the only one to use that exact phrase in the New Testament. Grace and truth, grace and truth. But with that, why is it so important in our spiritual walk, our spiritual life? I'm gonna quote a 20th century theologian and hymn writer, Ringo Starr, as he sang in 1971, you know it don't come easy. You know it don't come easy. What do I need grace for? Because it don't come easy. What do I need truth for? It don't come easy. What do you mean? The kingdom don't come easy. Watch this, verse eight. But Abner... Abner, the son of Ner, which, you know, makes perfect sense, commander of Saul's army. I, I always think, you know, if, if Abner's dad lived in today's day and age, he would have been picked on his entire elementary school life. Ner. Anyway, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Galad, over the Asherites, over Yezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. How many of you in your list of the kings, or maybe just in your biblical literacy, think Saul, Ishbosheth, David? You don't. 
Why? He's a false king. He is not king over the entire kingdom because David's king over Judah. He is only king over the northern tribes and he is an illegitimate king because he's not anointed by the Lord. He's not anointed by the Lord's prophets. He is made king by an army guy. This is almost like a military coup. He is a son of Saul, and so Abner, who served in Saul's army, commander, says, you're going to be the king, and lifts him up and sticks him in this position. And this is what I would call number five in our list, a geopolitical puppet. That is Ishbosheth. And if he reigned longer than two years, which he only reigns for two years, if he had reigned longer, I would have made more of an allusion to Antichrist, because it's the same idea here. Same idea, a political puppet who is put up by someone who's actually pulling the strings behind him. Abner's the one pulling the strings. Ishbosheth is the one who stands up. What do you think is going to happen? Ishbosheth, Saul's son, verse 10, 40 years old when he became king over Israel, was king two years. The house of Judah, however, followed, the, followed David. 11 tells us the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. What's happening during seven years and six months? Civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And this is the battle God foresaw, he knew was coming, which is why he doesn't send David when he says, go up to the kingdom. He doesn't say, go up to Gibeon. He says, go up to Hebron, because this is gonna be a hard-fought kingdom. Man. <laughs> you know, isn't 10 years of being on the run from Saul enough? Have you ever felt that way in your life? Lord, isn't it enough that now I'm finding out I have to go longer? We have been trying to get Xfinity working at our house for two days. It's enough already. We still have to call back tomorrow. Why? I mean, the persecution brought about on Cheryl and myself by Comcast. It's brutal. Anyway, isn't it enough, you think? Haven't I suffered enough, Lord? David could say that. You got seven and a half more years to go of bloody battle. You're gonna have to fight for this. Why? Because it don't come easy. The kingdom don't come easy. So Abner, commander Saul's army, he doesn't have the spiritual right, he doesn't have the authority, even politically, to make a king, and his choice is very poor, but hey, he's a puppet. So you want a poor choice for a puppet, right? You want someone who can't think or speak for himself to be the puppet. I'm not comparing to anybody currently. <laughs> That's you doing that. That's not me. Remember this, Ishbosheth. The name in the Bible is the character. A person's name is their character. When you say Yahweh, you are speaking of the character of God. When you say Yeshua, it's not just a name or a moniker. This is the person of the king, of the son of David. Names bear great weight, especially in the scriptures. And you gotta notice what happened to Ishbosheth, because that's not the name we were first given for him. In fact, his name morphs over time. Back in 1 Samuel 14, 49, he is called Yishvi. Saul had some sons, and one of them was named Yishvi. Yishvi means a man just like me. A man just like me. So if Saul was the soul man, this is little soul man. Just like his father, a man like me. But then we come to Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, 
And Yishbosheth means a man of shame. Man like me is now called a man of shame. This is biblical intentionality here because when we get to 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33, and this son of Saul is named there, his name is not Yishvi, a man just like me, or Yishbosheth, a man of shame. His name is now Eshbaal, which means a man of Baal. So if I'm just tracking his name, we go from a guy who's a lot like Saul to a guy who is shameful to a guy who is a Baal worshiper. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but his name being altered, no pun intended, to Eshbaal, this looks like he has become, ultimately, this is where his heart has gone. First, like father, like son, then a man of shame, finally a man of Baal. Why? Because he's a man after all the wrong hearts. Psalm 17, verse 15, David says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. You know what? Truly, the only identity that really matters for us is the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the identity we need, the one we look to. We're not looking in the mirror to figure ourselves out. We're looking in the face of Jesus so that we can be transformed from glory, his glory, to glory. From faith, by faith, we're being made in the image, remade, if you will, in the image, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And when you're being conformed after the person of Jesus, shame is not your name, nor is it the worship of any other thing. Now, we have no other insights to this puppet king, uh, except that he rules Israel, again, two years, not Judah, just rules Israel or the upper part of the kingdom. And in the end, Yishbosheth is going to be murdered by two of his own commanders as he takes a nap. It's a very sad end. This man of shame, truly the shame is Abner's. Abner is the one who's skeevy here. And it's always shameful to attempt to put anyone other than the Lord's anointed on the throne. Everyone in Israel knew by this time David was the Lord's anointed. Samuel had anointed David. They fought, some may have not, have not figured it out, but word is out. And to try and put someone else on the throne, someone we think we can control. You know, you can never control rebellion. Even if you try to put your own self on the throne of your life, you are putting a rebellious human being on the throne and you cannot control that. We need Jesus on the throne. So Ishbosheth's on the throne in Israel. David is anointed in Judah, and civil war breaks out. And we're going to get three quick stories now, and we're just going to kind of move through these, and I'll give you a point for each one, but in this geopolitical mess and with this geopolitical puppet up to the north, we get three, three quick stories, and this is where you get to the part of the teaching where you go, why are these here? So let's see if we can make some sense out of this. Verse 12. Now Abner, son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gabeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gabeon, and they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, he said, now let the young man arise, or the young men arise and hold a contest before us. Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and they went over by count, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. It's interesting, David's not here. 
Now, we can speculate as to why, but this is not something that is involving David. He sends Joab and some of his army to meet Abner and some of his army, and we don't know what instructions David had given to Joab, but now that they meet, they come up with just this brilliant idea, you send 12, we'll send 12, and we'll let them duke it out. We'll see who wins. That's the whole idea. So what happens? Verse 16, each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so they fell down together. Sword to sword, man to man, 24 guys lie dead. No one wins. Therefore, that place was called Helkat Hatzarim, which is Angabian. Helkat Hatzarim, uh, basically it means field of swords. So there is the field of swords, and every single man, 12 from each side, has a sword thrust through him as they all lie dead together in this bloody field. Story number one, I'm just going to call Survivor. Remember the TV show? Do you know that it's still running? This TV show started 23 years ago, season one, Survivor. Remember that? Anyone still watching it? Come on, fess up. Season 45 drops in September, baby. So I know where you'll be on a Wednesday night. No, I'm kidding. I don't know when it's, when it's airing. Yeah, I mean, it is still going on. People are fascinated by this. Survivor, that's the idea. It's a game. Let's get a head-to-head match of 12 of yours, 12 of ours, and the winner will say, okay, that group, that, that band, that army won the day. It doesn't work like that. If you, if you live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. And they all died, and there is no survivor. There's no one at the end. No council left even to decide who the winner is. No, the field of swords. And this contest now explodes into all-out battle. Story number two, strike. We've got survivor, which leads right into strike. Verse 17, that day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So they just blow into this massive battle, and David's men are winning. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were Joab and Abishai and Asahel, and Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Now hang on a second, who is Zeruiah? According to 1 Chronicles 2.16, so Zeruiah is the parent of Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, okay? Zeruiah, um, where am I here? According to 1 Chronicles 2.16, her name means balsam. Her name. This is David's sister. So in, in putting the pieces together of the relationships here, Joab, who is going to ultimately become the commander of David's army, is David's nephew by his sister, Zeruiah. And so she has these three boys, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. All three are David's nephews. Just keep that in mind. Asahel pursued Abner, who is that commander of Saul's army, now of Ishbosheth. He pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. So he wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. And, the, and then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Now, they're, they're in a foot race here. Abner's running for his life. 
And Asahel is running him down with murderous thoughts. He wants to kill this guy, and he's looking over his shoulder as they're hauling down through the, the hillside. Is that you, Asahel? And he said, it is I, still chasing. And Abner said to him, turn to your right or to your left and take hold of the one, one of the young men yourself and, and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. They're shouting at each other as they're running here. Abner repeated again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside and therefore Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Strike. Listen, even if you're in the right, chasing down the enemy can be a very foolish thing to do. And in our spiritual lives, and I don't, you know, we, we got to think about how is it that, that we enter into spiritual combat with the enemy of the Lord? Literally the devil himself and with his minions. There is, as we've talked about so many times, a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. But chasing down the enemy can be a very foolish thing to do. Don't underestimate the enemy. And I am not lauding Satan or his devilish acts. It's pure wickedness, but it is wickedness that is very shrewd. And sometimes we get this kind of Christian bravado and we say, bring it on. And we say, we're going after him. And I've had the conversation with people who say, whether there's a rapture of the church or not, I hope I'm left behind because I want to duke it out with the enemy. That is so foolish. That is just stupid. Bring it on. Another conversation that Don and I had years ago, and I think I may have mentioned this once before, but it was so instructive to me over time. There was a time in the barn on a Sunday morning I was teaching, I was talking about the devil, and I was talking about biblically what the Bible has to say about him, and I was feeling my oats, and I kind of said, bring it on, <laughs> you know? We have Jesus on our side, we, and, and so, and I was doing this kind of, do you remember this, Donna? And I was doing this little downputting of the enemy. And uh, it was just after that, I, I think, soon after that, that I got struck with my first case of diverticulitis. Now you can say, okay, yeah, well, that's just coincidence. Okay, believe what you want, that thing has, has plagued me for years. And I had never had any problem before. It was after that. And then one time, so we were praying about that very thing. And Donna said, you know, Rick, in a, in a way that only Donna can, so gently, she said, I think maybe you need to repent of something. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm your senior pastor. What are you talking about? <laughs> me repent of, you know? And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? And she said, she said, do you remember that Sunday when you said, bring it on to Satan? And I had completely forgotten. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. I remembered it vividly. And ever since then, I thought, you know, that's the wrong move. That doesn't mean we don't fight back. It doesn't mean we don't take on the enemy. But what we do is we do it like Michael. Not Michael laid a lot. Like Michael the archangel, Jude 9, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This is one of the toughest, strongest, most powerful and amazing of all angels. This is the angel who's gonna lead the charge, Revelation chapter 12, against the devil in the heavens. 
And he will not rebuke the devil. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. You see this tough, strong, powerful angel standing behind the Lord on this one. It can be very foolish to chase down the enemy, to pursue the enemy because he knows how to strike backwards. And you may find yourself very wounded. Okay, so, so what do we do? We just let the enemy run? No. We inquire of the Lord. We inquire of the Lord. We pull a David. Is the Lord telling you to pursue the enemy? Is the Lord telling you to pursue his servants or to take a stand on the battlefield? Is this the Lord? Then you do it, but you do it standing behind the Lord. I don't know that the Lord is going to tell you to chase down Satan. Rebuke him, yes, in the name of Jesus. But there is no room for arrogant swagger in our spiritual battles. And I can be guilty of that. I have been over the years. And that is something that I have learned. I've got to repent of that because it's, boy, it's so easy to get, to get cocky in this sanctuary <laughs> where I'm among friends. I'm in, I'm in Hebron in Judah. We all know each other here. We're good. We're on the same page for the most part. It's easy to be cocky here. Be careful with foolish bravado. We are fighting a very true spiritual battle. So the first story is a story of survivor. Everybody loses. The second one, we see this horrible strike against Asahel, and he falls dead, and everybody is stunned by it. Story number three, I'll just call Selah. Selah, verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Giah, by way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. And then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Oh, see, now he's calling them brothers. And so Joab responds, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Now, now understand what, what was just spoken there. Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his own brother. He's not talking about what Abner said right here. He's talking about when Abner first said, hey, hey, let's have 12 on 12. If you hadn't opened your big mouth in the first place, we wouldn't be in the midst of this conflict. That's what Joab is saying. You know, when Abner shouts out, let's play survivor. Now, of course, Joab agreed to it, went along with it, but here, in this moment, he blows the shofar and he calls for a temporary pause. Listen to it again, verse 28. He blew the trumpet, the shofar, and all the people halted. Literally there, all the people stood still. Something about the sound of the trumpet that gets people's attention. And all the people stood still and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore, at least that day. They stood Still, sometimes standing still, Selah. I borrow that from the Psalms as a pause. Sometimes standing still is the best thing we can do in battle. 
Man, you're fighting hard. You're fighting strong. You are fighting long to the point you don't even recognize you're weary. You need to hear the sound of the trumpet and stand still. You need to pause for a moment. Moses said in Exodus 14, 13, they're on the the side of the Red Sea. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The people are freaking out. They're stressed out. They're worried. And Moses says, stand by. Stand still. Just as Joab blows the trumpet and they stand still. Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And sometimes we think by our Christian nature that we are supposed to keep fighting on and fight and fight and fight. And God's saying, hang on, cease striving, stand still. Wait a minute. Maybe the next move for you is not to move. Maybe the next move for you is to rest. Or maybe the next move is just to pause long enough to inquire of the Lord, should I even go forward in this? Am I fighting a losing battle? Am I chasing down the enemy? Am I mixed up in something that shouldn't be happening right now? And we can get so caught up in the fight, we forget the source of our strength and our salvation. Cease striving and know that I am God. Or another favorite passage. I know we go to this a lot, but it's so good. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. And listen to the contrast. And you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. Oh, we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. You will all flee at the threat of five until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill, which is a picture of absolute desolation. I I remember when I was a kid growing up, I went to Arrow Bear Music Camp a couple of years in in a row up in the uh, San Bernardino Mountains, and it was all musicians, and we had this uh, two-week-long camp, and there was out in this Kind of there was a little ravine and there was a rocky area and in the midst of the rocky area was a single flagpole that used to belong to another camp. There was no flag on it. It just stood there and it was desolation. I I remember that. When I read this, I think of that flagpole left by itself, no honor, no flag, nothing there. And God says, you can run. You can rush, you can fight, you can strive, you can can engage in the battle, or you can stand still. You can cease striving and know that I am God. He says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for you to stop. He's waiting for me to cease striving and know that he is God. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him, all those who wait for him. And so sometimes what we need is exactly that. We need that Selah. They play a game of survivor. We see the strike of Asahel chasing down the enemy. And then we we see here this pause, this Selah. Everything stops when the trumpet blows. I think everything's gonna go full stop in this world when the trumpet sounds. People are going to not know what to do with themselves. Yeah, I'm talking about 
at the sound of the trumpet when the dead in Christ rise and we who are alive and remain will also be caught up and join them in the clouds and forever be with the Lord in the air. I'm talking about that moment of the rapture when that trumpet sounds, it's gonna go full stop on planet Earth. And I don't know if it's gonna be like the Left Behind series, you know, cars crashing and planes coming down and utter chaos and mayhem. It may be that God just in that moment, the trumpet sounds and, and every, every plane is grounded, every car just is stopped. Everything is immediate, full stop for the world. But whatever, it's, if it's catastrophe or if it's full stop, there is gonna be a moment there where the entire world, kind of like in the days immediately following 9-11, remember those, some of you? It was quiet. It was eerie. And I think it's gonna be like that worldwide when everything goes full stop at the sound of the trumpet. Well, verse 29 Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night. And so they crossed the Jordan uh, back on to the east side. They walked all morning and came to Mahanaim. And then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. 19 of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. So including Asahel, 20 men of the house of David had fallen. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that 360 men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. And we come right back around to Hebron. So Abner and his men, they head northeast. Joab and his army, they head southwest. And for now, the fires of civil war seem to have been put out, but really they're just smoldering, ready to spark again. But back to the question before we got to those three interesting stories, kind of brutal stories, Survivor Strike and Selah. Why are they here? Remember that, that God is intentional with Scripture, and he can put anything in the Bible and leave anything out of the Bible that he wants to. It's not a history book, though it's perfectly historically accurate. That's not the point. God is always teaching. He is always instructing. Jesus is ever the rabbi. And so the stories that are here are here to instruct us. What do these tell us? The kingdom don't come easy. This is war. It, it is not handed to you on a silver platter, nor will we, the church, hand it to Jesus on a silver platter. But this war began by Jesus giving every precious drop of his blood. That's the highest cost of anything in all eternity. Jesus gave up his blood. Now listen to me carefully. Because while that blood purchased and guarantees our salvation, we're still in the fight of our lives. We are still fighting on, and it is a fight for the kingdom. Don't misunderstand me. It's not a fight to get into the kingdom. It is a fight to overcome this world by faith. It is a fight to be prepared for the kingdom. See, that's how God works. It's not as this, this powder puff snowflake world works these days, where even your words can offend and, and, and affect me. I don't, don't speak a wrong word because that's an assault on me. That is so wimpy. And that is so culturally where, where uh, these cultures are at today. Oh, no, don't say that. Oh, that might hurt me. You know, when I was a kid, sticks and stones broke my bones. Words didn't hurt us. Well, they did, but it didn't matter. 
Because those words that hurt and those challenges and those difficulties, that's all kind of part of strengthening, growing strong. That's what God does. Why did Israel have all the problems that they had? Why couldn't David just walk right into the kingdom at the age of 17 when he was first anointed? Because it is through difficulty and fight and struggle that you come into the kingdom prepared. David will be prepared to be king over all Israel. First, he's got to be king over Judah. And before that, he's got to be on the run and tested and challenged and brought to his knees before the Lord is God. And so we are in this fight, which is not a fight to get saved. We are saved, but it is a fight that sanctifies us. It is a battle that is making you strong in the Lord until we overcome fully this world by, by faith. And that's the victory, right? 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. How is our faith made strong? In the fight. In the fight. You know, we're not even fighting to establish the kingdom. Jesus is gonna do that. He just shows up, kingdom's on. But we are fighting to be ready for the kingdom. Fighting to be who, who we're going to be in Christ in that coming kingdom. Seven times in his letters to the churches in Revelation, seven times to those churches and to, I think, seven eras of the church across the church age and speaking to the church that is in the world today, seven times we hear these promises, these covenant promises, if you will, of Jesus that are given to him who overcomes. And it is not overcoming Xfinity. Or Comcast, we finally won. Turn the TV, you know, it's not the thing. It's all the things that we think we're overcoming that are so silly. And then we get to a really hard patch of life or a tough road, guess what? That's where your faith is being born. That's where your faith is being forged in the fires of difficulty, in the challenges that are before you. And for those of you who tell me, and I hear this from time to time, my entire life has been a fight, has been difficulty, has been painful, I think, wow, God's got an important place for you in the kingdom because he is working really hard to build you up. What is that weird little sound? You guys hear that? That tapping? Anyway. Maybe it's just like, you know, the swelling orchestra trying to get the guy off stage. Anyway, num number six. Number six, which we've taken a while to get to now, is a great perseverance. And we talked about this on Sunday. The whole concept of perseverance is woven into our faith as followers of Jesus. And I don't think we can talk about this too much because we forget quickly. Something gets difficult and we start to go, oh, huh? <laughs> and persevere. You fight on. Because kingdom values, listen to me, kingdom values like unity are worth fighting for. Peace is worth fighting for. Joy is worth fighting for. Righteousness, these things don't come easy. We fight to be developed in these things. And I want you to listen carefully to the words of Paul. He's writing his second letter to Corinth. And in chapter six, he's talking about himself and his ministry team, but it so applies to how we are called to live in this life. Listen to this. He says, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
He says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. And listen to how. With much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. We get to this point in the list and I'm kind of going, man, Paul, this is getting a little wearisome. And then he says, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's the fight. That's what the perseverance of this struggle is doing in you and in me and through us. That's what it looks like. And on the one hand, it can be brutal, but on the other hand, it can be joyful. And in fact, it happens concurrently. All these things that are being worked in us as we struggle on for the kingdom in a great perseverance. Let me put it to you this way. The price has been paid, but there is yet a price to pay. Not for your salvation, not to get into the kingdom, but to be prepared for the kingdom. And this is what's happening with David and even with the people of the house of David. We're saved by grace through faith, but God in his wisdom knows the battle for the kingdom develops that faith. With strength, and perseverance, and, and even surrender. Sometimes that's what's going on. Why the struggle? Because God's waiting for you to surrender and inquire of the Lord. So Paul said, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life which you, to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you remember when you made the confession? Do you remember when you said, I believe in you, Jesus? Do you remember when you first received him as Lord and Savior? Man, hold on to that and let that be the start point. And remember, you made that confession. You trusted in Jesus. He's got you. Now fight and keep fighting and don't give up because we have, number seven, last point, a glorious promise. A glorious promise. I got to give you verse one of chapter three. Watch this. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger. But the house of Saul grew weaker continually. This is the man, the woman after God's own heart. You will grow in spirit steadily stronger. Not immediately stronger. Not instantly perfect. Not, you know, in a moment sanctified. No, you're gonna grow steadily stronger in spirit as you remain a person seeking after the heart of God. Or you can be like the house of Saul. You can be a soul man, soul woman, and grow steadily weaker. But our glorious promise is the house of David grows steadily stronger. And if you are of the house of the son of David, that house is getting stronger. I know, I know what it looks like in the world. 
I know what we see in different areas of the church. I know there are things that we talk about. We go, man, it's just kind of discouraging. No, 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 no. The house of the son of David, the house that Jesus built, is growing steadily stronger right up and to the point of the coming kingdom. And when the kingdom comes, we'll be ready. Philippians 1.5 promises, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Take that to heart. It's a glorious promise. Amen? Father, help us fight. Help us to fight with wisdom, godly wisdom, because we have inquired of you, because we've come to you. And we come to you right now just saying, Lord, okay, where to? Shall we go up? And, and if so, where to? We are asking you for direction. We are asking you for your paths. We are asking you to lead us in your ways. And we're saying, Lord, wherever you say to go, that's where we wanna go. And however we are to live, that's how we want to live. I pray for strength. I pray for perseverance. And I pray along with that for joy and comfort and peace that accompanies the difficulties of standing and fighting on in our faith. Father, we thank you. You have shown us over and over, just as you did with David in Hebron. The promise from Abraham now comes full circle. And Lord, you are a God who keeps his word. And sometimes it takes 400 years, or sometimes in this instant it takes nearly 1,000 years, but your word is kept. Father, help us to trust you will keep your word to each and every one of us personally and as a growing citizenry of the coming kingdom. Thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.